from the Credit Union National Association. This is the CUNA News Podcast. Credit Union people, credit union ideas. I'm Ron Jose, Senior Editor with Credit Union Magazine. Marie Smith, President and CEO of Local Government Federal Credit Union in Raleigh, North Carolina, is CUNA Board Chairman. Smith recently wrote an op-ed piece commemorating Black History Month. In that piece, he called for expanding the cooperative principles to include a core value for diversity and inclusion. In this podcast, Marie Smith discusses why diversity and inclusion are such essential elements of what credit unions and cooperatives do in their communities every day. He also reflects on his CUNA board chairmanship and what it means to be a leader today in the credit union industry. On a personal level, Maurice, what does Black History Month mean to you? Uh, that's a good question, Ron. And let's put the obvious out on the table first for those on a podcast who don't get an opportunity to see me. But I'm African-American. And so when we each year come along with February to celebrate uh, Black History Month, it has a very personal meaning to me uh, because of my heritage and, and ethnicity. It gives me a you know a source of pride for people who look like me and the contributions they have made to the world in terms of inventions and um, in the art forms and government and society in general. And so that gives me a, an enormous sense of pride and and the confidence that I too can contribute to the world as well. But also when I think about Black History Month, I think about the fact that there is a need to have a Black History Month in the first place. And so that signals um, perhaps a need for um, a greater focus on uh, equality. So the fact that we have a month that's set aside to celebrate the contributions of any group of people suggests that it must have been a lapse or blind spots in history's recognitions of those people's contributions in the past. And so that's not to suggest that we shouldn't have a Black History Month or any other holidays to, to celebrate any other, you know, points of history. But it's to suggest that we have a ways to go in culture and society and in business and even in the credit union movement to look for ways to be more inclusive of everyone. And so I, so I think about it from those two points of view. But uh, in either case, I am inspired by the works of blacks in history. But I'm also inspired by the opportunities that we have uh, facing us. How do you think credit unions can connect with Black History Month? You know, I think credit unions have an important role to play um, because the credit union movement essentially is a composition of communities and cultures and various perspectives. You know, Ron, I, I'm extraordinarily excited when I get an opportunity to talk to people from credit unions whose composition and demographics don't look like my credit union. Because I think there's so much we can learn from each other. So the credit union movement, it just seems to be against the grain philosophically of who we are if we aren't being inclusive of all of the voices that make up the movement. The point I always make about inclusion and diversity and such, and this this is a secret weapon for credit unions. You know, so for many businesses, whether they're selling wares or whether they have a service or some kind of product, 
they look to sort of create a target market of who they're going to serve. And in that target market, there's a certain amount of um, homogeneous characteristics that makes it easier to deliver your, your wares. But here among credit unions, you know, the fact that we can be more diverse, that we can serve a wider population of individuals who have all kinds of ideas and perspectives and histories and experiences, that enriches us as a credit union movement. And I think that makes us smarter, it makes us more competitive, and it gives us an opportunity to serve the population at large in a much greater degree if we were some institution or industry that focused only on a uh, a singular group of individuals. In a recent op-ed piece you wrote, uh, actually for Black History Month, uh, you wrote that to the seven cooperative principles should be added an eighth principle, uh, one that stresses diversity and inclusion. Why do you think that is so important within the cooperative philosophy? This is my 40th year in the credit union movement, believe it or not. And I can't think of anything I'd rather be doing with my life than what I'm doing today. And so growing up in the credit union movement and paying close attention to the history and the philosophy and of how we do what we do and why we do what we do and what inspires us, you know, I really take that to heart. And so the seven cooperative principles is something that I focus on, not just in my career, but also in my personal life. So I take them very seriously. And the notion that we can go to the principles and add a new ideal is nothing that I take lightly. And so these principles are the governing tenets that sort of define cooperatives and credit unions that sort of direct us. As my credit union thinks about strategies for the future, new products and services, we look at the principles and say, is this in line with what the principles say? And it is something consistent with what we should be doing. They're not quite stone tablets for the credit union movement and cooperatives, but there's something that if you're going to go to them and you're going to add a new ideal, it should be seriously considered what kind of impact it's going to have. I think it's time for diversity and inclusion and equity to be a part of the discussion about the principles. These notions seem to be getting louder today, not just in society or just in business, but I've seen this topic come up more and more in the various conversations I have with my colleagues. And I guess it runs toward the ideal that everybody wants to belong. So if you're going to be a professional, you're going to be a member, you're going to be a volunteer in this movement, you want to feel a sense of belonging. And so the movement is better when we invite and accept everyone into the fold. So I can think of no better way than to come up with an eighth principle that's solely dedicated to emphasizing this is a philosophical tenet for the movement that we believe so strongly that everybody belongs, that they have a contribution to make, and that it's going to make us better as a set of cooperatives, and in particular, the credit union movement, than to have it as one of the flagship principles that sort of drives how we do our business. And in that op-ed, you wrote that credit unions have always been focused on their members. And because of that, their structure, uh, their cooperative structure, credit unions should be the best representatives of fairness in their neighborhoods. You also wrote that credit unions have to extend themselves beyond financial exclusion. That kind of goes with the cooperative philosophy. How can credit unions accomplish those twin endeavors? Let's talk about inclusion and 
what it could really mean for credit unions. And so when I think about maybe just the basic definition of inclusion, is if you're giving everybody an opportunity to participate in the governance of credit unions, to participate in the management of credit unions, the access to financial services and wherewithal, this all gets to the root of inclusion and, and what it really means to our movement. But inclusion and diversity really presents a competitive advantage for credit unions. One of the examples I think about is the uh, most credit unions have investment policies. And probably one of the ideals in their policy is diversification. You know, we learned in kindergarten we shouldn't put all our eggs in one basket. And so if you're going to have an investment portfolio for a credit union, you think about, well, maybe I should have some investments in these various kinds of products, various terms. Maybe my maturity ladder for my investment portfolio should spread out my risk. And so there's a number of ways that we sort of measure that. So one of the assets of a credit union is its talent pool, its volunteers, its board members, its staff. And so if we want to be more competitive as an industry or a particular institution, to be able to have a diverse group of individuals bringing the very best ideas to the table to allow us to compete with the market and serve our members better gives us a competitive advantage over others. And so I see the, the notion here of uh, being able to include diversity and inclusion as part of a credit union's competitive advantage makes us stronger as a movement. Inclusion here, I want to make, make it clear here, when I talk about inclusion, I'm not necessarily meaning that credit unions should expand their field of membership. I think you can accomplish more inclusion within a credit union just with the existing members in the existing field that it already has. And so, so if credit union says, we want to be more inclusive, we want the better ideas to come to the forefront, and we want to make sure the members feel like they belong, they are part of the governance process, and that we really want to, you know, really walk the talk that we've been speaking here. You don't necessarily have to go outside your credit union to bring others in. Make sure that the existing members that you have all be part of the participation of the governance of your institution. Tell me about your inclusion efforts at LGFCU. Yes. Um, so the local government federal credit union was chartered in 1983 to serve city and county employees throughout North Carolina. And North Carolina is a fairly diverse um, state. And so we serve 545 municipalities, 100 counties. And in and of itself, we have a pretty diverse set of members within the credit union. And that lends itself to our board of directors, as well as the advisory council members that we have who sort of serve as liaisons to the board and making sure they're communicating to the membership. And we're also getting feedback from the membership. From the staff and the professional side of things, we do not have a separate inclusion or diversity initiative. And I want to explain why. Now, yeah, we, we, we have policies that, that frown upon bad conduct, anything that's going to uh, facilitate bullying or usurping the opportunities for employees to gain upward advancement in the organization. So, yeah, we, we got the basics there. But the reason why we don't have a separate diversity or inclusion policy is because we believe we've actually merged that into just our standard culture and our core values. And so our employees each have an opportunity to participate in advancement opportunities, to be rewarded for their performance, to be recognized for their contributions, and it just becomes a normal, natural way that we do business. 
There's a lot of small credit unions, and a lot of them are in your area too. Uh, um, there's a lot of small credit unions that really fight every day to serve the underserved. Um, and there's a lot of selfless people leading them. How can the credit union movement support those small credit unions? CUNA does a, a good job at having councils and uh, support services for small credit unions to help them be more competitive and to be more viable for their communities. But there's one thing, Ron, I, I really want to focus on here, and that is I want to refute the notion that small credit unions are lesser than anybody else or destined to be consolidated into the larger credit unions. So we've all seen the numbers. There is a massive consolidation of the credit union movement in terms of the number of individual credit unions. It's happening in the banking industry, too. It's happening in other industries as well, I imagine. We've seen the numbers where there's a steady decline of credit unions nationwide. This would give you the impression that the small credit union is doomed and that they're not going to be able to survive in the long term. There's not a whole lot of stuff to get the hairs of the back of my neck up higher than that idea alone. I believe that small credit unions have as much opportunities to thrive as any other type of financial institution. So here's my case in point. In North Carolina, there's 545 municipalities. We have some very large cities like Charlotte and Raleigh, and, but you also have some very small communities as well. If there was a universal thought that bigger is always better, then these small communities would not survive in my field of membership. Individuals can move anywhere they want to. So a family can move to Charlotte if you want to live in a community of 2 million people. But many people live in small towns because I like the lifestyle. I like knowing exactly who my neighbors are. I like seeing the mayor when I go to the grocery store and we can have a conversation about how to make my community better. I like a smaller and maybe a little slower pace of life. Individuals who live in smaller communities chosen to do so because there's something valuable that it provides to their lifestyle. Smaller credit unions can also provide the same kind of value to their membership if they're given the support and opportunity to do so. And so when you cast this notion that the smaller credit unions are not the future, that basically they are prey for the larger credit unions to merge them in, then I think we're doing a disservice to what they provide to the movement but they provide to their members and their communities. What the credit union movement can do for small credit unions is inspire them, support them, and let them know that we believe that what they're doing for all of us in general is valuable and making sure that we are here for them as well. What are you most proud of as, uh, about your tenure as CUNA board chair? Probably the, the thing that I'm the most proud of, Ron, is just being a part of this board of directors. I have a front row seat to some of the most amazing discussions that occur on this 24-person board for CUNA. And so board meetings, like most corporations and like, and like you know, the boards of our credit unions, they're, they're, they're closed meetings. You know, you don't typically televise them. You don't send your minutes out to the public, you know. So the CUNA board is no different that we have a closed board meeting. There's management and staff there to support the board. And we talk about some things that we want to keep to ourselves, you know, until the time is right to share with the with the rest of the movement. And and because we have board members who represent these different constituency groups from small credit unions, from geography, from the leagues as well, you would think a board that have all these separate constituent groups would be 
a board that's sort of, you know, entrenched on its particular ideals and interests, special interests, but that doesn't happen. And so I'm inspired to be with this group of talented individuals who really make conscientious, valuable decisions, very insightful, you know, judgments about what's good for credit unions at large. The only frustrating thing I might have about it is, is I wish the whole credit union movement could see in real time what their CUNA board does for them. I know practicality that makes that difficult to do so, but I want the rest of the credit union movement to feel really proud about what their CUNA board does for them because they are really making an effort to make our credit union movement even better. And I was reading your biography as I was kind of preparing for our podcast, uh, uh, I, I noticed that you're actually licensed to practice law, and uh, which is rather unique. And uh, let's talk a little bit about your credit union journey. Where did everything begin, and how, how did you get to this point? My credit union journey, believe it or not, began when I was 12 years old. And at the age of 12, my father insisted that I choose a career at that point. And he said, son, you don't you know, it's okay if you change your mind as you get older and decide what you want to do. But as a responsible citizen, you don't have the luxury of going through life without having a goal in front of you. So at the age of 12, he told me to choose a career. And through a series of happenings over the next 24 hours, I chose banking. But I wanted to go into banking business. I turned out better. I ended up in the credit union business. And so at age 22, graduated from college, I started as a loan officer for State Employees Credit Union there for 13 years, and then Jim Blaine eventually kicked me out, you know, tongue-in-cheek, and I landed at um, local government federal credit union in, in 1992. So law school was a, a late development in life. I went to law school at the age of 42. I was already the president of LGFCU at the time, and and I wanted an advanced degree. And I've noticed, Ron, that whenever big questions came up at the credit union, there was some legal issue, some compliance question, or something that might have been um, more technical or strategic, we often would contact our outside counsel and get their uh, opinions about what works and what would not work for our institution. And I thought, so what is it about being a lawyer that gives you special insight about making decisions. We get to the right decision, but I said, that's a skill that I want to learn. So I went to law school to pick up the skill of how to think like a lawyer, how to reason like a lawyer, and how to solve problems like them. And so it was a four-year journey of night school um, to get my law degree. I'm licensed in North Carolina, the District of Columbia, and also before the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, I'm smart enough not to practice law for my credit union. I'm the client here in many cases. So we still use outside counsel. We have we have several lawyers working for the organization that help us through some of the thorny issues. But it was uh, something I decided to do later in my career to sort of enhance what I was doing for the membership here. Yeah, almost as an intellectual challenge. I would tell folks who, who, who might ponder that for themselves, law school is not necessarily rocket science. You know, understanding the law is, is not overly difficult. It's the volume of information that you have to sort of digest that can get to be the challenge. But I would encourage any of my colleagues who, who might decide to go down that path to uh, certainly kick the tires. Yeah, in your 40s, too. That's really inspiring. 
Um, well, we had teenage kids. They were happy yeah. to get me out of the house. <laughs> yeah. 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 And it, it's, as you said, that's a, that's a heavy lift, even if you are a young person in law school. So as I said, it, it really is inspiring. A little bit to that end, too. I know just through my experience in the CUNA Publications Department that as CUNA chairman, you you really wanted to exercise your voice as a leader. And, and that that has come through in this interview. Um, and how do you see that role playing out as a credit union CEO? And, and speaking of in Black History Month, as, a, as an African-American CEO, uh, is inclusion part of your message in that role? Just overall, how do you view it? That's an insightful question, Ron. Let's see if I can give you an insightful answer to it. I, like everybody else, have a unique history or experiences to share with the membership or to an audience, to my staff, or to the community. And so I write a monthly piece that goes to our membership. Many times our members have, members have pulled me aside and said, I know that you're the one who's writing that CEO letter to us. I said, how do you know? They said, it, it sounds like your voice. It reads like you. I can tell it's you. And I said, so what is my voice? And they said, well, you reflect the culture of the organization. You're talking about caring about people. Sometimes it's not grammatically correct. Sometimes maybe it's not even politically correct all the time. But we know it's an authentic voice that you are lending to the membership. And I say, well, that is the highest compliment you can give to me because I don't want my message to be sanitized by PR or the marketing staff. I want you to hear directly from me because it's how I talk, it's how I think, and that's influenced heavily by what you as the members want from us. Inclusion was never intended to be part of my agenda for the CUNA chair role. I went into it over a year ago, and, and I didn't think about, um, okay, I'm going to make this, you know, my platform, and this is the agenda item that I'm going to pursue. It just seemed to happen. I would suggest to you, Ron, that I'm not a role model. I'm not, I'm, I don't pretend to be. I'm not trying to do that. As we mentioned earlier in our conversation here about diversity, the importance of diversity and inclusion is it gives an audience an inspiration to say, I can do that too. So when you have a Black History Month and you sort of show the accomplishments of other individuals, particularly those those of us in the African-American community, we see those accomplishments, we get inspired by them, and we get this idea, maybe I can make a difference and maybe I can do something because I've seen somebody who looked like me do that. So there's been more than one occasion that I have been approached by African-Americans in the credit union business who have signaled their interest in running for the CUNA board at some point in the future. Until they had seen me on the stage, it never occurred to them that they had a talent to share or an opportunity to present themselves at that level. And so while I don't want to be a role model, the fact that, that I've served in a position is inspiring others to say that I want to do that too. First of all, personally, that's really gratifying to me. But secondly, that's the value of inclusion because others say, I have a right at the table. I have something to give. And that's going to make the whole credit union movement that much stronger and much better. You recently joined the CUNA CEO Council. Can you tell me why you thought that was important to join that group? Absolutely. 
I mentioned earlier, Ron, 40 years in this business, been a CEO now, going on 19 years. And so earlier in my career, if you would ask me if I was sitting in this role for almost two decades, I would have said to you, I probably would have figured it out by then. And I would probably have a pretty good level of competence and sort of know what I'm doing. Two decades of doing this, I have a lot to learn. And I am inspired by being around my colleagues who are doing things that I hope to do, who are working in areas that I aspire to be part of. And I find great value in talking to other CEOs and presidents and leaders of the credit union movement about how can I get better at what I do. So being a part of the, the CUNA CEO Council is that feedback that I need, and it's that inspiration that I need to help me do my job better. Now, what I hope to have happen is that I will have something to contribute to the council that will be useful to my colleagues, and they might find it something worth pondering in the future. But for the most part, this is for selfish reasons, Ron. I'm joining this because I'm hoping to get a lot out of this that's going to do me a lot of good. And this is an open invitation to other CEOs. If you haven't checked out the CEO Council, come on by, take a look at it. Because unless you have the, you've gotten to the point where you realize, I figured it all out. I know all there is to know. If you reach that level, then you don't need the council. But I'm, I'm wagering that most of us recognize our own blind spots to some extent and know that we can improve somewhat. This is an opportunity for improvement, and that's what I'm hoping to gain. Thanks for listening to the CUNA News Podcast. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play.